You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Jet lag is not simply annoying. In repeated doses, it can be dangerous to your brain's health. People who frequently cross many time zones can experience brain damage and memory problems. In one study, flight attendants with five years of service who repeatedly took less than five days between long trips were compared to flight attendants who had two weeks or more between trips. That's still a lot of flying. Both groups flew the same number of miles overall. The short interval group had less volume in the temporal lobe, a part of the brain involved in learning and memory. This group also had problems on a memory test, suggesting that frequent travel had damaged their brains. The brain damage probably resulted from stress hormones, which are released during jet lag and are known to damage the temporal lobe and memory. Luckily, unless you work for an airline, you probably don't need to worry about this problem, since very few people fly across multiple time zones more often than every two weeks. More likely to be at risk are people who do shift work. Like repeated jet travel, frequent drastic changes in working hours are likely to cause stress on the body and brain. Sandra Amit is the editor-in-chief of Nature Neuroscience, the leading scientific journal in the field of brain research. Sam Wong is an associate professor of neuroscience at Princeton University. They've collaborated on their first book, Welcome to Your Brain, Why You Lose the Car Keys But Never Forget How to Drive and Other Puzzles of Everyday Life. Thank you for joining me. Oh, our pleasure. Thank you for having us. Lovely to be here. What's interesting to me is, from the get-go, this book is put together and designed and structured in a manner, I think, that's meant to engage the brain in many of the ways that you talk about the brain being best used. Well, it was really important to us to make a book that was as accessible as possible. We're working neuroscientists, and we often speak in the technical language of neuroscience to one another and to our colleagues. But this is a big chance to talk to a wider audience, to talk about ideas people have about their own brains, and to make it as friendly and accessible as possible. We had originally had the idea of this book grow out of a lot of conversations that we'd had with ordinary people in taxis and at cocktail parties. It's almost as bad as being a plumber or a doctor to go to a party and say that you study the brain because everybody has so many questions that they want answered. Now, I, I understand. How did this book come into being? How did you two meet and decide to collaborate on this book? We had a lot of mutual friends, and one of them introduced us and informed us both that we had been talking about writing the same book, and maybe it would be best if we wrote it together instead of in competition. Could you talk a little bit about this process of collaborating on a, a non work of nonfiction meant for a general audience? That's a, an unusual way to approach the first book that you write. It was a challenge. So uh, most of what I've written is of a very technical nature, scientific papers, Sandra, as a journal editor, is more used to writing for a, a wider audience, but we had to put a lot of that on the shelf, and we had to find a way to write that didn't involve using a lot of very technical words and getting into the dirty details while still conveying an accurate sense of the writing. And we formed a practice of each writing the chap a chapter and then handing the draft off to the other person for the other person to look at. And one of the things we worked on was how to adopt a single voice in writing. And that took a few tries, and we, after a few chapters, we, we got a rhythm going. 
we made a rule early on that we weren't going to use track changes when we passed chapters back and forth to each other because if a change wasn't important enough to notice, it wasn't important enough to complain about. And that helped us both to relax a little bit into the collaboration and being able to write in a single voice together. As you, uh, one of the things that, that I thought was really well done about this book was just the overall structure, the layout, the design, and, and the the sequencing of the information, the way you take us from the beginning to the end. Could you talk about, did you guys outline this in advance and say this is how we should do it, work out a complicated outline? So we had a complicated outline. This is a pretty funny story actually because there were a couple of chapters that got added in late that we just could not fit into our original outline and about two weeks before the manuscript was due to the publisher, Sam and I were literally at a wine bar in New York, and we scribbled out this new chapter organization, section organization, on the back of a napkin in the wine bar at about 10 o'clock at night, and went back home and put the book in that order, and it worked. There is one thing that we did plan in advance, which is that we realized that when you're reading some kind of technical prose or something that's scientific, one thing you encounter often in popular science books is that they're kind of long, and maybe you'll have to read chapter after chapter. And so we made a point of telling stories about the brain, whether they're stories about jet lag or stories about how to use your cell phone better, uh, that were finite, that could be read in, in one sitting. So just a few hundred words here, a couple of thousand words there. And we made a point of trying to make these stories that people could read that were readable in one short sitting. That's one of, I think, the most effective ways that this book is organized because you can digest each individual piece whole and of itself. As Did you have find yourself having to edit the subjects you were treating because of the way you were going to treat them? We pretty much talked about everything that struck us as interesting or potentially interesting to people about the brain. Well, let's talk about the brain. Y you start the book with a quiz, which I think is a really interesting way to start the book because it's kind of an upside-down approach to informing us. First, you want us to uh, understand what we don't know, which I think is actually, in retrospect, very helpful. Well, the quiz was a lot of fun to write. The process there was we started by writing, uh, as we talked about, outlining the book and thinking about what would be interesting to put in it. And then we thought, what really draws people in? And when you look in popular magazines, one will often find a quiz, and so we thought that would be a fun thing to do. And we started from the outline that we had and all the ideas we had, and we thought, well, let's ask people, you know, what do they think drinking does to their brain? What do they think happens when they talk on their cell phones? And then we composed the questions. It was fun. One of the, the things that I thought was very interesting is this uh, trusting the brain. You start out with trusting the brain. And I recently attended a, a meeting called the Singularity Summit in San Francisco. And a lot of these people, this is about the, the coming uh, approach of AI when AI essentially wakes up. And so they, they have a lot of interest in, in the brain in the way, and they're finally getting interested in the way the human brain works. This is uh, Ray Kurzweil's thing? Ray, Ray Kurzweil's thing, yeah. yeah. Right, yeah. And, and one of the guys I talked to, was named, uh, his name was Sam Adams, and he had gone back. It, they decided rather than to try to design an electronic Einstein, that it might be more useful and to try to design an electronic toddler because all the stuff that a toddler, <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what happens is, and you guys talk to, speak to this, that what happens is 
it's pretty easy for the brain to do uh, what we consider as adults a complex abstract problem. But what's really hard is to just look at something and uh, identify different objects in the visual field. Yeah, so I think it was a revelation for neuroscientists as well when AI first started and people realized suddenly how difficult some of these things are because the, the trick is that in terms of introspection, it feels effortless to look at a scene and figure out what the objects are. And we very rarely see something quickly enough to misidentify it the way you do if you're driving down the road and that dark object suddenly turns into your neighbor's cat. But really, your brain is making those kinds of judgments 24-7. You just are not privy to most of that, what's going on there. One of the things Sam Adams talked about was he, he thought that, that intelligence and, and he, the human mind work by a combination of what he called superstition and forgetfulness. In, in <laughs> which I thought was an interesting approach. And his idea was that we take in so much information constantly through our senses. It's, it's petabytes of data that are coming into our senses. And we absolutely know, the brain knows it cannot store all that data. So it has to almost instantly decide what to forget and what to remember. And it also has to place faith that some things will continue even though it has, that's the first part of this forgetfulness, the superstition, is that we have to place faith in things that we have no idea will really continue because we need to be able to put our foot down <laughs> on the floor. Yeah, this is why eyewitness testimony is so problematic because every single one of us experiences this internal sense of continuity, this feeling that we see everything, we remember everything, and your brain is to a very significant extent a machine for throwing away information, for picking out only the things that are important, particularly the things that are changing or that don't go as you've predicted, and only hanging on to that. One thing that happens in, um, that's been studied in the laboratory is when one becomes consciously aware of an action, and this has been studied both on a second-by-second -second level and also as you make complex decisions. And it, it both, in both cases, what happens is that your actions often change or you execute an action before you become consciously aware of it. So for instance, if you do a study in which people are asked to tap a finger in response to some stimulus and also asked to report when they become aware of that stimulus, the awareness comes after the action and so they begin by doing. And likewise, people can be given a, a gambling game in which the decks are stacked against them and they start changing their actions and they start feeling um, a little bit bad about their decisions, they start getting a little suspicious without really knowing what's going on. And the conscious awareness that the deck is stacked often comes last. And so there are these processes that go on in which there are these rivers of information going by and you're tossing away information, you're making decisions, and you're not always completely aware of what's going on because it's this continuous process that gets reported, you know, that, that one becomes aware of sometimes after the fact. I found it really interesting when you talked about the left and right brain functions. We all have this idea of what's the left and right brain, but it's not exactly the right idea, is it? No. I mean, if, if you realize that the left brain controls speech in 97% of people, we have to look with a little bit of suspicion on what it is that the left hemisphere says the right hemisphere does. I think some of these stories of uh, the right hemisphere, which is not capable of defending itself, have been quite wrong. How do we measure this activity, that what's doing what? 
the studies have been done in what they call split-brain patients, which are people who, usually for reasons of intractable epilepsy, had the two hemispheres of their cortex separated surgically in order to keep seizures from spreading from one side to the other. And that is an excellent natural experiment because it gives you a person where one eye and one hand are under the control of one side of the brain and the other eye and the other hand are under the control of the other side of the brain. And although the right hemisphere can't talk, it points just fine. So what the experiment is that they did was to show somebody a picture in only one eye so that only one side of the brain could see it and a different picture in the other eye so the other side of the brain could see it. There, one very famous case is this patient who was shown a chicken claw in his left side of the brain, the one with speech, and the hand that's controlled by the left side of the brain pointed to the matching picture, chicken, as instructed, and the right side of the brain was shown a snow scene, and th that hand pointed to a shovel Again, you know, perfectly okay so far. The interesting part of the experiment comes when the experimenter then asks the guy, why did you point to the shovel? And the left hemisphere has to answer that, but the left hemisphere doesn't know the answer. And without hesitation, this guy says, well, the chicken claw goes with the chicken, and then you need the shovel to clean out the chicken coop. <laughs> and so the trick is that the Almost never did a patient give the correct answer, I don't know. I have no idea why I did that. And our brains are not wired to say, I have no idea why I did that. Uh, so the psychologists call this the interpreter. It's the part of our brain that follows us around making up stories about why it is that we do what we do. And that is also a left, left brain function, as it turns out. So we lie with our left brain. Our left brain has such an intense need for logic and order that if things don't make sense, if there are discontinuities in the story, it will fill in those gaps with whatever seems plausible. And thus the unreliability of eyewitness testimony. Exactly. Could you talk about change blindness? I thought that was really interesting as well. So change blindness is another one of these uh, attempts to demonstrate for people that we don't, in fact, see nearly as much as we believe we do. Uh, the classic change blindness experiment, the one that's the most fun, involved uh, somebody would ask someone on the street for directions. And as they were discussing the directions, uh, workmen would carry a door directly in between these two people. And those, under the cover of the door, the person who had been receiving the directions would be replaced by somebody else. And in more than half the cases, people will continue to talk as though nothing has happened. And sometimes it's just outrageous. You can replace a middle-aged, white, balding guy with a Asian woman and have the person just go straight ahead. If you, if you want to see this for yourself, you go on the web and search for change blindness videos. There, there are a lot of them out there, and they're really a lot of fun. We get a lot of our ideas for how the brain works from the movies, and, and that proves to not be a good source of uh, brain information, <laughs> does Th it? That's right. There's a lot of pop 
folklore about there's a lot of folklore about how the brain works that you can run across in television and in movies and it'll typically go something like uh let's see uh, uh i don't know gilligan gets bonked on the head and forgets who he is and misadventures follow and then gets bonked again on the head and then remembers who he is and that uh and the first part might possibly be okay because it certainly is possible to lose one's memory by a head blow although that tends to be uh, a pretty general loss. So you tend to lose your memory of who you are who you are, and become confused and experience other problems as well. So an example of something that a head bonk wouldn't do would be uh, to uh, for you to be perfectly oriented to your surroundings, perfectly aware, but forget that you're a trained assassin, which is what happens in the born identity. And certainly the thing that never happens in, uh, in most cases is the second bonk on the head causing recovery, right? That, that second bonk, it's kind of like your old television. You know, you hit it a few times and then it, it starts working again. This does not happen. Head bonk is bad. Another thing that we see a lot is this idea of schizophrenia in the movies. And I think this is a really a, a tragic, a big problem because schizophrenics in the movies tend to be slavering killers. Oh, well, they're, uh, yeah, mental illness is often not portrayed very sympathetically in the movies. There is one case in which schizophrenia is portrayed very sympathetically. It's A Beautiful Mind, and which is a movie about uh, the mathematician John Nash, who's one of the faculty at, at Princeton where I teach. And it portrays Nash as being someone who's beset by these these things that he believes to be there, and he's convinced that they're there, but, but they in fact are not. So hallucinations, visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations. And the movie does a very good job of portraying those. And often these things can be very disorienting and confusing to the person who sees them. And so that, that would be an example of popular enter- entertainment in which a neurological disorder is portrayed very sympathetically. It also f- fascinates me as the many rhythms of the brain and the human body and how we manage those rhythms. Yeah, so those are all controlled by a master clock in the brain in an area called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. Well, there are rhythms at all different time scales. I, I don't know. I guess one question is which kinds of rhythms? Are there rhythms that are several times a second? There are other rhythms that are once a day? Well, tell me about who, who controls what and what rhythms there, there are. So the rhythms that we know the most about are the circadian rhythms, the, the ones that happen on a once-a-day time scale. And those are internal rhythms that happen by themselves. They will do what experimenters call free running. If you just put a person or an animal in the dark continuously, people will still wake up at roughly the same time and eat at roughly the same time and go to sleep at roughly the same time, even without the cues of other people or light activity. But Free-running rhythms don't stay on an exactly 24-hour period. So in order to keep your rhythms in sync with my rhythms, in sync with Sam's rhythms, we need our daily dose of light first thing in the morning. And if you, if you get light when you first wake up, that resets your clock and tells it, okay, this is morning, this is the time we're going to get up tomorrow. And that's uh, the key to figuring out how to deal with jet lag Tell us about jet lag. We all want to know how to recover from it. Well, let's see. So jet lag was, was first discovered about 80 years ago by long-distance pilots who discovered that when they crossed more than three time zones or so, they felt kind of off when they got to their destination. And the reason has to do with what Sandra has talked about, that there's a clock in your brain that's driven by light, 
and it's primarily driven by light, and it tells your brain, which then relays the word to the rest of the body, what time it is. Um, so you can reset your clock basically by exposure to light. So there's some practical tips for jet lag. Uh, one is that because light is what resets your clock and not activity, uh, you might feel an impulse when you're jet lagged to just stay up and to force yourself onto local time. Forced activity is does basically nothing to reset your clock. And so one thing to remember is that if you're jet lagged and you have an opportunity to sleep in your destination, you should, and you're not doing anything to affect your clock one way or the other. Uh, another principle is that, as Sandra has said, light does things to set your clock, but also at certain times of the day, light tends to reset your clock to make you get up a little bit earlier or a little bit later. So for instance, um, light in the morning helps you get up a little bit earlier the next day. Light in the evening helps you get up a little bit later the next day. And so if you're going to a new place, let's say you're going from here in Santa Cruz off to Europe, this is you know nine time zones, so it's a very large difference. The rule of thumb is that when you get to your de destination, you ought to get sun in the afternoon. And the reason for that is that when it's afternoon in Madrid or Florence or wherever you are, it's morning back here. And so that light is going to help you get up earlier the next day, which is what you need. When you come back, it's the same story. You come back from you know, your jaunt to Paris, and you come back here to Santa Cruz. And uh, that now you should get light in the afternoon here because it's night or evening back in Europe. And that helps you get up later the next day. So the rule of thumb is whichever way you're flying, get light in the afternoon. And it's important not to make the opposite mistake of getting your light in the morning in Paris because then it's night here and you're actually working against yourself. You're making your clock move the wrong direction. Uh, this brings to mind uh, something about sleep that, that interests me. Um, do we all sleep the same number of hours? Do we all need the same number of hours of sleep? Is there not a bell curve for how much sleep we need? We don't really know how much sleep most of us need because most of us don't get anywhere close to the amount of sleep we do need. So it is possible to run for a long time on basic small amounts of sleep deprivation, and that's what a lot of modern people do. But that doesn't mean that your brain is functioning at its best during that time. How, how do we determine whether or not we need more sleep? Well, one good rule of thumb is that if you're going through your daily activities and you're sitting there and you're doing something, some normal activity, and you feel sleepy or you feel yourself nodding off, then you're probably sleep deprived. And that would be one way of detecting sleep deprivation. And this is, I, I can tell you that I've gone through periods when I felt this just through normal daily activity. That would be a good sign that maybe you're not sleeping quite enough. When you uh, get to the realms of the senses, you, you talk about all the senses. This is all how we get all our input. And there's, uh, I think the overview is, is that everything gets mapped. Yeah, the brain is full of maps. So in many cases, things that are next to each other in the world, their representations are also next to each other in the brain. And that's true of visual points that are next to each other in the world. It's true of physical touch sensations that are next to each other on your skin or auditory stimuli that are next to each other in frequency, you know, so notes that are next to each other on a scale tend to be represented next to each other in the brain. And this helps the brain to put back together this coherent world that we all experience from these fragmented senses that we get. 
you describe vision as being more complicated than we think, and I think that's really interesting. Could you elaborate on that? So vision is one of these things that we think of as a coherent whole. And in the chapter that we wrote, we talk about this guy, Mike May, who you may have heard of because he wrote his own book that came out while we were working on ours. And he was a, an amazing story. He was blinded at the age of three. And then at 43, he got a cornea transplant and got his sight back. But of course, in the intervening four decades, his brain had been deprived of vision. And it hadn't learned properly how to do all these low-level things that all of us do automatically. And so for him, when he's walking around the mall and the skylights put a, stripes of shadows on the floor, he thinks that's a staircase and he doesn't want to step there because he can't tell the difference between a two-dimensional shadow and a three-dimensional object. And he can't recognize faces at all. He's uh, invited somebody else's son out for ice cream after the Little League game because he didn't have any idea who he was talking to. You know, they all wear uniforms. It makes them a little harder to tell apart. And he, st you know, he steps off curbs because he doesn't know that they're there because they don't look three-dimensional to him. He can't tell objects apart very well. And all of these things, it's like learning vision as a second language as an adult. He, he doesn't speak vision fluently. One thing, uh, I, you say this is really common, but I had never, never knew it, the, the, the photic sneeze. Could you talk about the photic sneeze? I, yeah, I actually am one of those people who gets photic sneezes. So something like about uh, as many as one in four people in the general population sneeze when looking at the sun. And, uh, and they do this, it appears to be, uh, there is some suggestion that it may be, may be genetic, that it may be partially inherited. It's not clear exactly why that is, except that certain kinds of information get passed through the same cranial nerves. And so there's this one nerve, the trigeminal nerve, and it conveys a lot of information from uh, facial touch receptors and also from uh, the eye. And so one possibility is that it's a form of crossed wiring in which inputs that come into the brainstem, which is the brain's core, may receive information both from, say, something like uh, a ticklish stimulus to the nose or, for instance, a bright source of light. And the trigeminal nerve conveys information from various parts of the face. And so the suggestion is that there's some kind of crossed wiring in which signals in one part of the trigeminal nerve then leak over into other parts of the trigeminal nerve. And as a result, this sort of crossed wiring, it's sort of like hearing a phone conversation on a party line or on a line where there's a little bit of an interference. It's a little bit like that. We're learning, I think, a lot more now about the sense of smell than we did. They're making a lot of advances, as I understand it, in the sense of smell. And I was always curious whether there would be an even-tempered scale of smell. Yeah, so that's been very exciting over the past five years. Uh, we had a Nobel Prize recently, well-earned, on figuring out what the receptors are for the sense of smell. So what, what are the proteins that detect the chemicals in the air that we experience as smells? And it turns out that there are about a thousand of them. This is in contrast to, say, your eyes, which have four different light receptors that contribute to vision, in addition to another one that contributes to this circadian rhythm setting that we were talking about a minute ago. So the sense of smell is very, very complicated, and how 
the different chemicals and their relationships to each other map onto these receptors is still not completely sorted out, but we've finally got some traction on the problem. And smell and taste are intertwined, aren't they? It is true that smell contributes to what we think of as taste. Unlike the complexity of smell, there are only a few taste receptors. There are five altogether. Sour, bitter, sweet, salty, and umami. umami, which is a Japanese word that we don't have a word for in English, which is sort of a, a full meaty taste. It's the taste of MSG that they put in the food at Chinese restaurants. Yeah, you get it from cooking meat or from cooking mushrooms, for instance, that brothy taste when you make stock and it's got that full mouth feel. That has a name in Japanese. The Japanese people are quite aware of this flavor. And so when you eat something, the first thing that you get is activation of these five different kinds of receptors in the mouth. And then at the same time, it wafts up into your olfactory receptors. And, and that secondary processing gives a lot of the richness and complexity of flavors. You also talk about touch. And there is a really interesting phenomena that we've probably all experienced referred pain, but never heard described in this particular way. Could you talk about that? That's an interesting idea. So this is another example of this crossed wiring that we were talking about. So there are nerves that carry information from different parts of the body, and when they carry pain information to the brain, sometimes the brain gets confused about where it's coming from. The classical and, and most serious example, the one to be aware of, is that if you feel pain in your left arm, with an unexplained origin, that is often a symptom of referred pain from a heart attack. So the nerve that carries pain from the heart and from the left arm is one and the same, and sometimes the brain confuses them. Oh, I never knew that. That's so, that's so you know, fascinating. Watch out for that left arm pain. Yeah, I, I'm hoping to avoid that. Yeah. Um, and you explain something that I think every human being has wondered at some uh, deeply disturbed point in their lives, why we can't tickle ourselves. Could oh. you explain that to me to our audience? <laughs> right. So you certainly can't tickle yourself. Um, and the basic reason is that your brain is in the business of predicting what's going to happen in the world. And one thing that's very important to your brain just as a survival mechanism is to notice when new things happen. And so what you don't need in order to survive is to constantly be activating uh, uh, the idea that something new has happened just because you happen to have moved your leg in a certain way. And so your brain is constantly in the business of making predictions about what something will feel like. And as a result, uh, you can't, when you touch yourself, it doesn't tickle because in some sense you're, you're, because you're predicting the movement. So for instance, doctors know this principle. When, often when a doctor is examining you, the doctor will touch you. And if it tickles, what the doctor will do will say, well, why don't you put your hand on top of my hand? And then when the doctor moves his or her hand around on you, now you're generating a movement that could predict the sensation, and so therefore it doesn't tickle. Um, oddly enough, scientists have gotten very interested in how you can push this. So for instance, there's a machine that's been built. It's a self-tickling machine. And it's a machine in which you pull a lever, and that lever operates a, a little handy thing that's on another lever. And so you pull on this lever, and then the handy thing moves and tickles your other palm, or attempts to tickle your other palm. And if they're in perfect sync with one another, then there's no tickling sensation. And you can turn a dial to make a little bit of a delay. If you turn up the delay a little bit, it uh, still doesn't tickle. And then you get it up to about a fifth of a second, then it begins to tickle. And that basically tells you something about the kind of predictions that your brain is making. And it, apparently, in this particular category of prediction, which uses the cerebellum, the prediction is good for about a fifth of a second. And beyond that, it starts tickling again. 
Now, you just said a word we've all heard many times, cerebellum. It's one of the many parts of the brain about which we don't know very much, do we? I mean, any of these parts, we're not, it's a lot more complicated than we'd like to think. Well, a lot of the earliest evidence about what brain regions do comes from so-called lesion experiments in which, by some unfortunate circumstance, some part of the brain has been damaged. And then what you can do is you can look at the person and see what goes wrong in the person's behavior. And that's, basic, that's, that's the original source of information for a lot of what a lot of brain regions do. And then since that time, there's been a lot of elaboration on that kind of idea from monitoring activity and, and paying attention to what you know, what kinds of activity occur in various parts of the brain. In the case of the cerebellum, the cerebellum is probably is uh, known to be important for balance. It's known to integrate sensory information, uh, but it's also known to be important for generating movement. So, for instance, people with damage to their cerebellum are no longer able to make smooth movements. They can no longer pick up a bottle or a, a glass smoothly, and they tend to overcompensate or not compensate for movements. So, for instance, an example of everyday compensation is you, you're walking along, and you see a step, and you know that when you get to the step, you should shift your weight in certain, a certain way so you can make the impact of the step smooth. And you know that there's something going on in your brain to compensate for this, because if you encounter a step and you're not expecting it, then something happens and your body plunges. And what's going on there is that your body is making, your brain is making predictions about what should happen, and that gets integrated to generate a smooth movement. As I read this book, I was really impressed by the way you um, salted each of the chapters with, with uh, practical advice and, and examples. Uh, could you talk about, as, as two writers collaborating on a book, could you talk about the process of figuring out where you wanted to put these things in? And did you do, that, did you do it like in the way we see it in a book with you know, text blocks? Or it, seemed, it looks great on the page. It seems like it might be really difficult to write. So we decided when we first started writing the book, we had this orientation to try to combat some of these myths that are out there about the brain. But that felt a little negative. That was not so fun. And what we ended up vowing to ourselves was that every time we took away a myth, we were going to give an equally interesting fact in return. So, for instance, we take away the myth that you can make your baby smarter by playing Mozart to her, but we give back the fact that learning to play a musical instrument actively as a child increases spatial reasoning skills. So there is a way that music can make your child smarter. It's just that you've got to go through the whole process of learning to play the piano or the violin or whatever it is and not just passively sit there and watch baby Einstein on the screen. So, so we really made a big effort to find every positive, useful thing that we could tell people about how to become better brain owners. One thing that was important to us when writing Welcome to Your Brain is the idea that we, that we had in mind that human beings are storytellers. We, we teach each other things by stories. We form models of the world in telling stories. And the story can be anything from a story about how chemical bonds form to how uh, the heaven and the earth were created. We're, we're constantly telling stories. And so when we have these myths... Uh, about only using 10% of our brain or uh, about uh, playing Mozart to a baby to make her smarter. Those speak to stories that we want to know about our brains, things that we want to believe. And we felt that it was really important to replace that story with another story because, as Sandra said, it's no fun to just say, yeah, that's not true. Right? That kinda, it's, it's a conversation killer. Well, tell me, 
what kind of science made people think that playing Mozart would make a baby smarter? And what kind of science uh, disproved the old science and, and is waiting yet to be disproved by yet another <laughs> version of this science? This is a fabulous story. This is a case study that has been examined by academic sociologists. It's one of the very few brain myths where we absolutely know where it came from and how it spread into the general population. The original source was a paper that was published about 15 years ago in the scientific journal Nature. And they showed that playing Mozart increased performance on one aspect of an IQ test before about 15 minutes, 20 minutes. And the subjects in that study were college students. So then over time, if you look at the journalistic coverage of that finding, gradually it went from college students to children to babies and from 15 to 20 minutes to eventually lifelong improvement and from spatial reasoning subtest of the IQ to total intelligence and it, it just grew all out of proportion to the original result. Um, and there is absolutely no reason to believe that something that's true for 15 minutes in college students would be lead to permanent changes in a baby. Nobody's ever tested that. In fact, meanwhile, back in the laboratory, scientists attempted to replicate this finding in students and were not even able to replicate the original result. So not only did this idea mutate in the telling in sort of a game of telephone, oh, it works in children, oh, it works in babies. Meanwhile, the scientists are saying, oh, it doesn't seem to work at all. And, and, but meanwhile, you know, the parade has moved on. And now you've got baby instructional videos, baby DVDs being sold. And so the two things, the scientific reality and the popular perception went off in totally opposite directions. And uh, yeah, so we, we're hoping that a few people will read Welcome to Your Brain and see the two maybe reconverge a little bit. And, and there's another myth that you just exploded, which was the 10% of our brain. I mean, I was just waiting to, I knew that pretty soon I'd figure out how to use the other 90% of my brain and I'd all of a sudden be brilliant. Well, that's exactly the appeal. That's why everybody loves that myth. It's so democratic and it gives you scope for self-improvement. I mean, think if you could use 12% of your brain it doesn't seem like it should be that hard. People say that Einstein used 13%. <laughs> oh, could he find his car keys, though? Pretty sure Einstein didn't have any more luck with his car keys than the rest of us. When we're young, that's when we are able to learn language and learn, learn more than one language if we're fortunate enough to be in an environment where that happens. Or can we learn more than one language when we're young? Yeah, it is possible to have more than one native language if you are exposed to multiple languages when you're young. Kids who learn multiple languages are a little slower to pick up each of their languages because they have a certain amount of interference between them. But by the time they're about four or five, they've completely caught up and they will speak all of those languages well for the rest of their life. And adults who learn a language learn with a slightly different part of their brain and in a different way that is not as easy or as permanent. I mean, Sam's got a 
nine-month-old baby, and he is just about to uh, enter into the wonders of the age when the baby learns four new words every day. Right. She's currently, currently her words are blah, blah, and blah. Blah, 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 blah. That's, that's what she generally does. There are phenom- there's a phenomenon in which different uh, mental abilities that happen during development can easily be acquired at different times. And so rather than children and babies being a blank slate, there are times when they're really receptive to certain types of information. In the case of language, uh, there is a time window during which you can learn language, and during that time window, you will learn to speak without, uh, without an accent and also as a native. And then the ability to acquire, the ability to produce new sounds closes at some point. And then there's a, another age period, uh, I think between about the ages of about, uh, I think, 8 and 12, during which when you learn a language, you eventually will learn to speak uh, fluently and more or less think in that language, but you've lost the ability to acquire new abilities to make sounds, and so you speak with an accent. And so that's, that, that accounts for the phenomenon of speaking fluently but with an accent. Wow. That's <laughs> so fascinating. A- and you talk uh, about uh, something I think every student needs to know, cramming for an exam and training your dog. <laughs> Yep, this is one of the most robust findings in all of psychology, and I'm amazed it's not more widely known in the general public because it's really practical. So if you are studying something and you do two 10-minute study sessions separated by a break, you will learn almost twice as much as if you do one 20-minute study session with no break. And this is goes for all kinds of different learning all the way through life and it also works on animals so if you're drilling your dog for hours at a time you do much better to just take quick study breaks over the course of the day with breaks between to allow the information to settle into the brain properly and another thing that i think we all need to know about is how to escape bad memories and, and, and bad emotions. Emotional pain is so um, difficult to deal with and, and so uh, it, it seems so real and yet unreal. So one of the wonderful things about getting older, one of the very few things that I can say unequivocally, it is absolutely fabulous to be older is that older people are much better at handling negative emotions. They are less likely to dwell on the bad things that happen to them. They are less likely to react with temper tantrums when things go wrong. And they are very much more at ease with working the stories that they tell themselves about what happened around to some positive outcome. This is called... uh, this, this form of reinterpretation is probably a lot of what people learn in therapy, learning to figure out what the good aspects of an experience were, even if there were bad aspects, and think about those. And that's a, a proven way to increase your happiness and reduce your negative emotions. This is called reappraisal? Mm-hmm. That's a, it's really useful to, to know that. And, and it's also useful to know that, that anxiety is useful. We, we need to be anxious, don't we? 
colloquially, we think of emotions as being bad, like the kind of thing that you say when confronted with a difficult decision is, uh, don't be so emotional, be rational about it. But emotions are extremely important for focusing our thoughts and getting us to think about how important an outcome is. People whose emotion mechanisms are damaged, uh, for instance, with orbitofrontal damage, are unable to evaluate risks in a rational sort of way and tend to evaluate all outcomes in an equal sort of way. So it's re- emotions play a critical role in, in decision-making to get us through life. And, and decision-making itself is a lot more complicated than, than what we thought. And you have a really interesting uh, segment on, on making decisions. Could you talk about how we do that and, and how hard it is? People have just started to study the brain mechanisms of decisions and how you know, it's much easier to look at the directly observed sensory input and what people physically do. But there are a number of really interesting findings lately about how people make decisions and how they evaluate risks and possibilities and how rarely any of that is completely rational. Um, one of my favorite little stories in that regard is that if you give people a nasal spray of oxytocin, which is a chemical that's released during a lot of bonding experiences, including um, having a baby, nursing a baby, or having an orgasm, people show a higher sense of trust in a social interaction with a complete stranger than they would ordinarily. So all of these kinds of uh, bonding experiences that we have make us more willing biologically to trust the people that we're close to, which obviously, at least if you've chosen the right people to be close to, is an adaptive strategy. Now, you've written a book. Uh, I'm wondering if you can tell me where I go when I read that book. Where you, where you can get the book? No, no, no. Where my mind is uh, when I read. What is what, it doing? You're, when you read a book, your brain is doing all kinds of complex things, just beginning from the visual signal going from the retina to your visual cortex and then being uh, chopped up and interpreted. And uh, verbal recognition is a big subject. Do we, do we have many studies on that yet? Have it's been studied a lot. There's a lot of interest in it because of the phenomenon of dyslexia. So as you read, your brain is planning ahead, planning your eye movements to fixate on roughly the center of the next word as you go along or the next several words, depending on how fast you read. There, the part of your brain that interprets language is picking out those words and assigning meanings to them and sometimes coming up with associations of nearby words that have some relationship to what you're reading. And you're always, as we are every minute of every day, telling yourself a story about what it is that you're reading and what what the content is and why you're there and what's happening to you and whether you care about this particular thing and if so, is it because it reminds you of your grandmother or whatever the reason? We've been speaking with Sandra Amet and Sam Wong. Their new book is Welcome to Your Brain, Why You Lose the Car Keys But Never Forget How to Drive and Other Puzzles of Everyday Life. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Thank you.